Well, you almost had me fooled. Told me that I was nothing without you. Oh, and after everything you've done, I can thank you for how strong I have become. Cause you brought the flames and you put me through hell I had to learn how to fight for myself And we both know all the truth I could tell I'll just say this is I wish you farewell I hope you're somewhere praying Praying I hope your soul is changing Changing I hope you find your peace Falling on your knees Praying I'm proud of who I am No more monsters I can breathe again And you said that I was done you were wrong and now the best is yet to come Cause I can't make it on my own And I don't need you, I found strength I've never known And I'll bring thunder, I'll bring rain Whoa when I'm finished, they won't even know your name You brought the flames and you put me through hell I had to learn how to fight for myself And we both know all the truth I could tell I'll just say this is I wish you farewell I hope you're somewhere praying Praying I hope your soul is changing Changing. I hope you find your peace Falling on your knees Praying Oh, sometimes I pray for you at night Oh, someday Maybe you'll see the light Oh, some say in life, you're gonna get what you give But some things only God can forgive Praying. I think that's the the theme uh, for most of us, uh, trying to make sense of uh, all that is going around, especially especially the disinformation. We are at a point where we're just like so confused as to what is going on, like what is the plan, and what is happening. No one seems to understand 
what is happening? <laughs> it's it's so confusing. We're seeing uh, things being told by news outlets, by pundits, people we follow. And it seems like everybody's saying something different. Uh, people are pessimists. Other people are optimists. And it's kind of like, okay, well, can we get, you know, um, <laughs> a little bit more clarity? So, in the case if we're wondering what the master plan of evil is, that's to mislead people, to make them follow his ways of all things that evil has been doing in the world since the beginning of time. All the stealing, the destruction it's been doing on it, one of the greatest plans to steer everyone away from Christ, from God, to make no one attain salvation. That is what evil is. In Revelation 13, we saw the plan of the devil in the end time, that he wants the world to be deceived. He wants the world to bow down to him. He wants people to himself, right? That's what it says. And the beast came from the water, from the earth. The description was given to tell us what is to come. That is, you know... Um, what people need to understand, and I, in John, in Revelation 13, 1, and I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and upon his horns, ten crowns, and upon his heads, the name of blasphemy, right? Now, obviously, it's not going to be something with seven heads, right? These are all metaphoric terms. We just have to understand that deception is exactly what it is. It's deception, deception, deception. That's basically it. It is deception. If he can deceive you to the point that you are so confused, he's one. That's basically it. He wants to deceive you. Evil wants to deceive you. This was always the plan. <laughs> you know, when the elections were stolen, it was so blatant. You're just thinking, come on, man. It's like, you know, someone walking up to store, you know, right in front of the cash register person, taking a fruit, peeling it open, eating it. And then they're like, are you going to pay for that? And then be like, pay for what? You just stole that. No, I didn't. And you're just like, I saw you. Yeah, no, I didn't. I mean, at that point, what do you do? What do you do? You call the cops. Right? You're like, dude, that, that guy just stole that orange and they were eating it in front of me. I saw them. Here's the camera footage. And then the cops are like, yeah, well, I don't know. What if he paid for it before? I mean, I don't see anything here. He didn't try to sneak it away because <laughs> that's what stealing, that's what people usually do, right? They, they hide things. This was in front of the whole world to see. And they sat there and said nothing happened. And so you look crazy, right? Huh? What do you mean we stole? Did, what are you talking about? That was the plan all along to steal it and flex their power to show you how insanely strong they are and how they can do things so blatantly and get away with it. <laughs> Who's going to touch us? Nobody. Who's going to fix this? Nobody. Really? Well, see, that's not the way it works at least on paper in the United States of America. And while people are saying, Amy Coney Barron and Kavanaugh said no. Yeah, they could have said yes, but they didn't. Does that mean that they're evil? No. Does it mean that they did wrong? No. 
you don't know. Some things are done in a specific way because there are other ways to make it happen. So that is how you have to see it. Trust your gut. Trust your gut. Trust in your gut what you believe is happening. Uh, trust your gut. It'll tell you. It'll tell you everything you need to know. Just you. Inside you. That's it. You don't need to look to anyone else. I mean, I see a lot of people saying, well, what do you think about this person? This person said that. I don't give a shit what anybody says. I'm not them. I don't care. If you think that, you know, they're right and you want to go follow them, go ahead. You're not following me. I'm with you. Uh, we're in this together. I just happen to be chatty. Okay? We're supposed to be in it together. Like, talking together. You don't need to follow me. Okay? I'm investigating for you because you guys work. And I'm doing things, which, by the way, I have, like, two projects going on. Oh, my gosh. But anyway. So, oh, I wanted to say. Okay, so Subscribestar, guys. I just got like 150 subscribers. I just surpassed. I was like stuck at 130 something subscribers. And I and I saw and I had 150 subscribers. Thank God. Because the website that I'm building, you know, I obviously have to service that. So thank you to my um so I have 150 subscribers. That's pretty awesome. I think it's more than the ones that I have. I think I only have like 20 on Patreon, but thanks guys. Um that's awesome. I really, really appreciate you. Um, so your gut is supposed to trust, is is supposed to be your beacon of hope. Uh, and hope in regards to understand your light, your guiding light should come from you. Not what I say, not when so-and-so says you. And the only person at this point that can dictate to you the course of action is the president. And that's it. And he did so yesterday. He responded to what happened at the Supreme Court while everyone was sitting there sharing really funny memes. Look at Amy Comey Barrett. She didn't do that. He didn't seem fussed. The taxes. Oh my gosh. We're going to go through that today because that's pretty awesome. Monuments closed. It was completely tossed out. But guess where it's not going to be tossed out? Ooh, because it's moot now. He's not there. So there's no point. Done, dusted, finished. But now they're going after taxes, which is great because we know that Hunter Biden's been under investigation since 2018. And what I've been digging up, and I know other people have been too, right? Trying to keep the 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 FBI a little bit honest, right? Is um getting the right information. Because I mean, if the president select and his cabinet are profiting, kind of like you know, Ron Klain. While everyone thinks that it's Obama, remember Ron Klain was there before Obama. Ron Klain handled Valerie Jarrett. Ron Klain has been there since Bush. Ron freaking Klain, hello. These are the people you don't know about. I am showing you these people. So, um, just to say, the main chat room on Telegram has like over 12,000 people. Majority of them are trolls. They just come in. Other people just come in to find the news. If you don't like the environment that they're putting, you know there's a lot of other Tory Says groups, right? Spinoffs with a couple hundred, right? I'm just saying. Because people are complaining to me, oh my God, they're these people. Yeah, people keep sharing other people's stuff in there. And it's like, that person's a loser. Ugh, we already said that. Nope, not happening. This isn't real. Sharing accounts that aren't even real. So it's like... 
you know, I, I leave it up to the mods because it's your room, not my room. It's for the people. You guys are, Tori says. Okay. Now, a little bit of an update on what I'm doing with the lawsuits. I'm waiting for, shoot, I should have had it yesterday, but I didn't. So I'm going to have to send an email out and say, hey, I didn't get this. I was waiting for something. So that way I can just walk down the street and file. Um, so I have to send an email after the show to get that done. Meantime, I also want to say tomorrow we'll discuss this. I just wanted to give you a preview of what Millie is going to be premiering at night, I think on YouTube or whatever, or um, where she's going to be putting it. Here's um, a pretty interesting clip. Let me look at all of these on. guys. No, nope. because as we know, today we have um, the Senate hearing on Capitol Hill and what happened. I want you guys to check this out. Uh, here we go. Look at all of these guys. Notice the orange beanies. Or what about the orange tape? Clearly, they are using orange as an indication that they are on the orange team. Notice the orange team was instrumental in breaking through police barricades to get inside the Capitol. For quite a while, Ali has been pushing the color orange. Everything from saying 2020 was the year of orange, to selling orange shirts, to calling himself the orange prophet, to wearing orange in association with the Stop the Steal movement. He even wore all orange on January 5th at the pregame rally, so to speak, for January 6th rally. Give us what we want, or we are going to shut this country down. I didn't say I was going to go joker mode. I didn't say I, would be, I became an accelerationist. Even our whistleblowers were drawing attention to Ollie and his associates on Twitter having an orange block next to their names in what appeared as a color revolution tactic hearkening to Ukraine's orange revolution. Hundreds of thousands of pro-democracy Ukrainians in the streets today protested against the results of the presidential election. The orange revolution in Ukraine resulted from a controversial presidential election where there was alleged massive election fraud and corruption. In this photo taken at the Capitol during the January 6th event, you can see Sergei Dubinin, a Ukrainian protester and agitator. What are Ukrainians that participated in an armed revolution in Ukraine doing inside the United States Capitol? You have to ask yourself, is it because the same people that were behind the Ukrainian revolution are also behind the storming of the Capitol? Rewind 15 years, Manafort was brought onto Ukraine's political scene as the country was still dealing with the fallout from the 2004 Orange Revolution. So we've been talking about this for how long, right? And we've been saying it and saying it and saying it and saying it again, nobody listens, right? So now after the fact, with all this evidence, because people had to get shame, they had to totally... Uh, deplatform people. They had to create and paint, you know, the conservative movement is something terrible in order for people to see, because I know that half of you were following this idiot and, you know, we're praising him. Why? Because he has bots. He's a loser. And I did say in the summer, I did say, I did say it, that people need to stay away because he's going to get them rolled up. And you have to wonder all these people, you know, that uh, plot against the president movie, 
Do you know that Ali Akbar and his boyfriend were involved in that too? Oh, yeah. That's why they're supporting Ali. Who are they protecting? Who are they protecting? Who are they protecting? Who gave the order to go after Millie, Bergie, and myself? Who gave the order? Because I had him figured out from 2018. From 2018, I had him figured out. I even, when I saw it, I was like, damn, there goes Alex. He's toast now. He's got Ollie all over him. Any money exchanged all over him, they're done. They're busted. All of them are busted. All of them. And then other show hosts are praising them for saying nice things. You know, everywhere. Everywhere. Not one, two, three. All of them. Oh, he's so right. If you even read some of the stuff he puts out, you're just like, is this guy insane? He makes absolutely no sense. I abide by faith, hope, love. These three, the greatest these is love. No, you don't. Because we have blog posts of yours from when you were a teenager. Maybe he's not telling us his real age. Maybe he is. From a teenager where he's calling people out and saying, well, I fired this person from my blog. Did you know that his chief... um you know, um, editor-in-chief for his blog, former U.S. Air Force, got busted for diddling kids. Yeah, criminal record and everything. Got done in by the court-martial for it. That's the type of people Ali is because he's part of the Lincoln Project. They're all freaking perverts, all of them. And they all circle around from that Texas area. Weaver, Perry, Ali. <laughs> I sent them bagels, by the way. <laughs> you know, the, the not so nicely ones, the chocolate chip ones. No offense to anybody that likes chocolate chip bagels. I just thought they should be, you know, courtesy of, of Shadowgate. I sent them some bagels. And then I got him this coffee that was lavender, hazelnut, vanilla, and oat milk. Like, who would drink that? Barf. But maybe he does because he likes to get pedicures and boyzillions and stuff. I already know who all his, you know, uh, <laughs> little people that take care of him. Because, see, I may not say much, but, you know, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> you know, when it's time, I make sure that you know. And, you know, I'm really glad that... um you know, after the fact, I really wish this had come out earlier, but you know, sometimes people have to see it because we can't tell you, you have to see it. Cause if we tell you, you're like, Oh, well, I don't care. Look at all these nice people that are saying all these things, all these things, all these things. Look at all these blue check marks saying all these good things about him. Maybe you're just salty Tori. Nope. Nope. I was right. And many other people were right that were saying it. But the thing is, you have to see it. See, this is why it has to be this way. You, you think that people are just going to fix it for you? How ungrateful. How ungrateful. How ungrateful. Do you think people are just going to do all the heavy lifting so that way you could turn around and spit in their face? No, that makes you lazy as a citizen. You need to see it. You need to see how it happens. You need to see how it breaks down. You need to see that this guy, this guy ruined, ruined our movement. He ruined our Patriots Day. And all those people that were like, oh, um, well, he can't be that bad if this person's endorsing him. <laughs> uh, the, the swamp runs so deep, so deep. It's something that the Nazis used too. It was um, it's called propaganda. 
Uh, do you know that most of them used radio, obviously, because not a lot of people had TVs. But I thought it would be nice for everyone to revisit how Nazi propaganda shaped a lot of everything. Because that's exactly what shaped your minds throughout these past six years. Propaganda. The radio. 1923. Through 1945, the Nazi party used radios to spread its message to new followers, especially pushing the argument that Germany had been wronged by the Treaty of Versailles. Alongside posters, school programs, and other more obvious forms of indoctrination, the radio allowed for subliminal and less direct messaging. Similarly, compulsory films in school for children accompanied mandatory listening to Hitler's speeches over the radio. 1923, the creation of German public broadcasting soon led to the establishment of regional broadcasting companies. By the end of 1924, nine companies existed. Radio broadcasting was state-regulated by the Reich Radio Company, with 51% owned by the Ministry of Posts and the other 49% by the nine companies who controlled program content. The increase in frequency strength combined with the information and entertainment available on radio led to widespread radio consumption of the medium in Germany during the mid to late 1920s. Now, as you watch and listen to this, I want you to replace radio with Twitter and TV, how your children were forced to watch CNN kids, right? And some kids like mine and a friend of mine's kids uh, uh, the other day uh, said it too. They're being forced to watch CNN kids. A fee was required to listen starting in January 1924, but content was non-political until 1929. Radio exhibitions began in 1924 and were later used by the Nazis to encourage and manipulate radio ownership and usage. The Nazi party did not begin using the radio until after the presidential elections that took place in 1932. So regulation and ownership. So who was allowed to be on the platforms or have a station or social media platform, you're seeing it now, right? Same thing, same thing. Just it's not just radio. This is 2021, right? This is almost 100 years later. So we've got social media and TV. So people don't have the right to just pop up and do whatever they want on mainstream. They've got to be in the background, you know? So that's number one, right? Number two, who's allowed to use those or have access to it is another one. Gosh, deja vu 100 years later. During this time, there was still an anti-Nazi element to radio messaging that resulted in a positive outcome for Paul von Hindenburg. The opponents of the Nazi party used radio to try to denounce the latter's referendum against the Treaty of Versailles in 1929. German state radio was fully nationalized in 1932 under von Papen as chancellor. During the election of February and March of 1933, Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister of the Nazi party, blocked parties other than the Nazi party from transmitting political broadcasts. Hitler's speeches were broadcast, often in outdoor forums during that election. Radio broadcasts of marches, rallies, and public demonstrations were meant to give the impression of mass popularity in a peer pressure type tactic to get votes in the 1933 election. This was much more effective than when Hitler delivered a speech in an empty room, which didn't come across as well on radio. After a victory in this election and the further tactics that followed, the Nazis were able to seize power. In June 1933, broadcasting became part of the Ministry of Propaganda. Goebbels oversaw the replacement of hostile radio managers and reporters with Nazi supporters, and by April 1934, all regional companies became unified under the Nazi ideology. Its slogan became, 
a radio in every German house. Goebbels ordered the mass production of cheap radios, known as Volksempfanger, or the People's Receiver, in 1933, opening up new audiences to the message of the party. He had long recognized the potential of radio to indoctrinate and create a unified opinion. As Goebbels put it, the radio was the spiritual weapon of the totalitarian state that destroyed the spirit of rebellion. The content of Nazi radio programming included music and plays and Hitler speeches which featured anti-Semitic content which intensified through the decade. In 1935, it is estimated that when Hitler broadcasted his speeches on radio, he reached an audience of over 56 million out of a population of 70 million. Censorship on the radio led to a ban on jazz music in 1935 and laws against interception of non-German stations. Penalties included death. Even the mass-produced radios themselves were designed with a limited range in order to prevent foreign broadcasts. The law against jazz music was interesting because they forbade it in Germany, but used it as a propaganda abroad. Goebbels and a Nazi-sponsored swing band called Charlie and His Orchestra, named for frontman Carl Charlie Schwedler, took aim at Britain, then the United States later on. In 1940, the band broadcast its music, full of messages about Aryanism, Jewish conspiracies, and weak British leaders, across the pond. A cheaper version of the Volksempfänger, the DKE-38, was released from 1938, nicknamed the Goebbels Schnauzer, or Goebbels Snout, and sold for just 35 Reichsmarks. Even if a radio wasn't in reach, public loudspeakers spread the Nazi propaganda message in factories, public squares, schools, offices, and restaurants. Radio wardens were present to ensure people were listening to the major speeches being broadcast. By 1939, 70% of households had a mass-produced radio. In June 1940, the Nazis established a program for broadcasters to issue special reports about the war. During the war, the Nazis expanded their propaganda tactics on the radio. Axis Sally, real name Mildred Gillers, was an American in Berlin who worked for the German state radio. In 1942, she was cast on the Home Sweet Home Hour Show to weaken the morale of U.S. troops. Radio broadcasts that focused too much on politics became boring to the average listener, so the Nazis switched to mainly music and other entertainment. In 1944, radios were used to give the soldiers at the front a sense of relaxation and to convey cultural values. On May 1st, 1945, a German radio broadcast announced Hitler's death, fighting up to his last breath against Bolshevism. In the aftermath of Hitler's death and as the Allied forces moved through Nazi-occupied territory, party radio stations were systematically shut down. The last broadcast in the name of the Nazi state was sent from a radio station in Flensburg near Denmark on May 8th, 1945. Subscribe for more... Hmm... Sounds, uh, <laughs> sounds super uh, familiar. Oh, let's go to how it sounds familiar. I think it's important for us to uh, look at what's happening right now. I mean, the Democrats have now pushed and are demanding that, uh, you know, Newsmax is removed from television and silence because, because they don't like what they're saying. You know, because they can. They can. They can because they are that insane and that forward with what they're doing. And and that should tell you a lot. The fact that they're so brazen about stealing the elections, about demanding these insane non-American things has to get you thinking 
what are they really doing? They want us distracted with all this uh, election theft and brazen First Amendment theft, silencing, changing your constitution. But what is it that they're hiding because they're so brazen about this? That's what you have to think about. No one's that dumb. Look at me. Look at me. I'm doing whatever I want. Ha, ha, ha. And then you have to think, what are they doing in the background to not give a crap of doing this so brazenly? Just you have to think about that. And OAN. Part of it reads both Newsmax and OAN ran incendiary reports of false information following the elections uh, and continue to support an angry and dangerous subculture that will continue to operate semi-openly. What a load, right? As a violent mob was breaching the doors of the Capitol, Newsmax's coverage called the scene a sort of romantic idea. This letter was sent to Comcast, AT&T, Spectrum, Dish, Verizon, Fox, and Altice. Brandon Carr, one of the commissioners for the Federal Communications Commission, has come out denouncing uh, this ludicrous attack on free speech, and he joins us now. Sir, thank you so much for the time. How fast will they cancel him? <laughs> think about this. This is from yesterday. How fast were, are they going to cancel this guy from the FCC? Yeah, great to be with you. Thank you. All right. We want to read part of the statement that you released today in response to all of this. It says, quote, the Democrats are sending a message that this is a clear, this as clear as it is troubling. These regulated entities will pay a price if the targeted newsrooms do not conform to Democrats' preferred political narratives. This is a chilling transgression of the free speech rights that every media outlet in this country enjoys. Explain, uh, explain what they're trying to do here, in your opinion. Yeah, this is really a stunning attempt by these Democrat lawmakers to bully newsrooms just like Newsmax. In their view, this conversation that you and I are having right now is not one that your viewer should be allowed to listen in on. And I think what we're seeing here is a movement that started at least in 2016, where Democrats were trying to bully uh, internet providers, uh, websites, Twitter, Facebook, into shutting down conservative speech. They believed that they had some success with that endeavor, and now they're trying to extend their gains in their view and shut down uh, conservative outlets from cable news as well. I think this is a chilling transgression of free yeah. speech values and one that we should all speak out on. Yeah. I mean, we, we watched for years during the Trump administration. Uh, I mean, some of the clips are just hysterical uh, of what the left wing media did with the Russian collusion, Russia collusion story uh, for years. I mean, they took it so far uh, as, as, as far as the opinion shows went, the things that their guests were allowed to say, very, very dangerous. Talking about the president of the United States literally being in bed with the Russian president and, and, and making policy based on what Russia wants. It all turned out to be not, not true. I don't remember any calls for them to be canceled. So someone uh, pointed out something that we've been saying on this show for forever. It's not about shutting me up or Newsmax up. Is It's about not letting you have access to that, right? You're not allowed to have access to that information. That's why it was important that I played that Hitler clip because what were they controlling? Not only were they controlling who had access to information, not only were they controlling what platforms were allowed to be on that, but what they were controlling is what information you were allowed to thought police. You are not allowed to have this information. You are not allowed to see this information. You are not allowed to have knowledge. That is the point.
The First Amendment isn't just about you speaking. Rooms that have political viewpoints that are different than the California Democrats that sent this letter. Yeah, and those two Democrats are Anna, and I don't know the last name particularly, Eshu, I believe, and Jerry McNearney uh, both wrote this letter. Do you, what percentage of Congress, I guess, of Democrats, do you think they represent writing this letter? Do you think that this is a widespread, widely held belief on the left that we should start canceling free speech in this country? Well, here's the, silver here's the silver lining from this really chilling transgression, which is rumor was this letter was circulated among a range of Democrats for a couple of weeks. Thankfully, uh, it only ended up having two signatures. I'm, I'm hoping that that's a sign exactly. that there wasn't a broader appetite on the left to go down this path, but, but I'm not so sure. I mean, again, we have this growing approach in the US uh, towards uh, trying to cancel any political speech that doesn't fit with Democrat orthodoxy. So while it's good news that there's only two people signing this letter, I think we're far from out of the woods as a country right now. Yeah, absolutely. The letter, now we, we read one of the claims of the letter, it falsely claims that one of our guests, and I was actually anchoring the day that the Capitol riot happened, uh, I was here for the breaking news. One of our guests called the Capitol riot a sort of a romantic idea, is the quote from the letter. It's a lie. The truth is this. The statement was made uh, long before the violence began that day. That statement of the, the romantic idea was made while the president was giving a speech before anybody had become violent. So they're already lying. And we just want to remind everybody watching that from day one, we have condemned the violence that happened there. Uh, and we've, we've, we kept an open mind on allegations of election fraud. We did. We listened to it. We never said it was what happened. We just said we're going to hear all points and we're going to see if there's investigations that come from this. Um, but let's here's a reality check for the liberals about how we handled uh, the violence that happened at the Capitol. The images that I've seen this afternoon at the Capitol, frankly, disgust me. Violence has no place in our society. Destruction of public property has no place. Disrespecting law enforcement is not acceptable. This is un-American. This is not what we do. We are better than this, and we must denounce this. We condemn the violence. We condemn it, all right? The people who did illegal things must be arrested. The small fraction of Wednesday's massive D.C. crowd took it way too far, and we at Newsmax condemned that. I mean, we said this stuff about a thousand times uh, in the weeks after that happened. Um, it's just not enough, though. Uh, I mean, what, what, what else can you do? Yeah, you know, there's a great statement that, um, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. And I yeah. think the Democrats are seizing this to push a long running desire to control the political narrative in this country. Look, everyone that I know of has rightly condemned what happened on January 6th. Look, speaking personally, my entire family was up there inside the Capitol complex that day from my wife to my two youngest kids. And I spoke out very clearly uh, on this issue as it was happening. But this idea that we should use that as a as a way of getting at cable providers so they drop this channel, drop Fox News, drop OAN uh, is certainly a bridge too far. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to stand up and protect the culture of free speech in this country. These lawmakers aren't going to be able to pass a law that achieves this result, but they are certainly trying to use their bully pulpit to put pressure on companies, put pressure on advertisers to achieve their preferred political outcome. 
And I think that's just yeah. wrong. Yeah, it is interesting. All right. Brandon Carr of the Federal Communications Commission. So Brandon Carr actually said what the real issue with this free speech thing is. It's what information you're allowed to have. You are not allowed to know things. You are not allowed to see things. This is why uh, Australia has been removed from Facebook. If you're in Australia, you can't have Facebook. Why? <laughs> because, you know, remember where Australians came from, right? You, you remember we did a show on that, right? So I'll give a little summary to those that are new to Tory Says and haven't been following me. Um, for those of you that are having technical difficulties, I sincerely urge you to hop on to Trovo or Twitch. Um, DLive, you know, I'm, I'm able to stream today, but... You know, I might not be able to tomorrow. I've sent the messages. They're not responding. I'm getting rid of them anyway. I'm just going to not use it anymore uh, at some point because, you know, they're not responding to any of the messages I'm sending them. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, Twitch and Trovo. But like I said, I um, my counterpart is um, working on creating a um, a place where you can go and... It's going to be pretty, pretty awesome, uh, uh, the way I see it. Pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, <laughs> I wanted um, to say that the whole free speech is not so much about what you can say, but what you can hear, okay? And why? Well, here's a little trip down memory lane. You do understand that during World War I, um, marketing was a huge thing. And the government wanted to sell the war. And then you have to think to yourself, why would the U.S. government want to sell us a war, right, so that we can get behind it, right? What did they do? How did they do it, right? How did they do it? And I'm going to show that to you because I found an excellent clip. Um, but we've talked about this before. We've talked about how um, they have hijacked and psyoped you. Well, in this period of time, there's nothing that's left out of this psyop. And it's actually quite terrifying uh, to the levels that it is. I mean, with the use of AI, you know, people are worried about AI taking over, right? If it's done right, I mean, look at me. It, it's not. It's not that scary. Um, but AI is a weapon when used as one. And, and that is what they have done. They have weaponized AI, hence why the elections weren't really about the elections. They were, they were about way more. And yesterday I gave you guys a hint when I introduced you to Ron Klein. I'm working on an article, but before I can publish it, I need to file something in the court because I don't want it to, I want it to be reinforced that I've filed a criminal complaint or um, it's, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, another thing is, is that, um, you know, Patrick Berge signed something and that something um, <laughs> has a deadline of March 4th. He texted me and started laughing. He's like, look at the way time works, huh? Uh, yeah, by law, the deadline, <laughs> the, the date is March 4th. So I was like, damn, mm, that was funny.
And I'm proud of Patrick. Like I said, you know, I, Patrick and I see eye to eye almost on everything, but he is, um, he's, he's a mere human. That's, that's very angry. I get angry too. And it overwhelms me a lot sometimes, but I get to compartmentalize that, um, and then get over it, um, with a lot of prayer. I do get over it. Um, so I wanted, um, to show you this. So you understand how this has been going on for over a century and you've just not realized that you were born into it. After the United States enters the war in April 1917, President Woodrow Wilson knows that he needs to mobilize not just the American army, but the American people. And he knows that's a difficult task. So what Wilson does is he launches a massive campaign of propaganda that taps into every media that's available in America at the time. This includes newspapers, movies, posters, toys and games for children, all aspects of popular culture. In some ways, this new propaganda machine is not so different from this new industry called advertising. But now all of those techniques are being turned to advertising the American war effort. The primary person behind this effort is George Creel, who presents Wilson with the opportunity to turn this propaganda machine into a government agency, the Committee on Public Information, or CPI. The major mission of the CPI is to get all of Americans on board with the war effort. Creel gets 75,000 men to volunteer to be what were called the four-minute men. They went all over the United States. They were speaking in movie theaters. They were speaking in libraries. They were telling people to support our efforts in the war. Buy Liberty Bonds. Follow our food policies. Eat less. Conserve more. And grow your own food and then supply the labor that's needed, not just in the war industries, but also on farms. The beauty of the Four Minute Men is that they are doing the government's work, but they are in fact actually volunteers, neighbors, people you might already know who are volunteering to sort of spread the message and to create the kind of national unity that President Wilson worried wasn't actually there under the surface. George Creel is also having newspapers follow the articles that he is actually giving to them through a daily bulletin. This is the day of newspapers being abundant. They're looking for ways to fill their columns. The daily bulletin provides these things copyright free. So you can just take an article that was written by a staff member of George Creel's. So newspapers will have a lot of pro-war articles. Americans are seeing propaganda images at the movies, they're seeing it in the newspapers, um, but they're also seeing it everywhere they go in the form of posters. Some of the most famous artists in America are making them, and millions of them are being printed and distributed all around the country. It is in particular a poster war. They're graphic, they're violent, they're bloody. There's one of the Kaiser as a giant spider attempting to spread his hairy legs all over the globe. Sometimes it's how awful Germans are. You know, there's an image of a German soldier dragging a young girl. Posters that encourage people to leave the meat and the bread for the soldiers. You'll see images of women for the land army, support for the YMCA. Probably the best known um, is a poster that was made by James Montgomery Flagg. Uncle Sam had been around for a long time, but James Montgomery Flagg's version, which is the one with Uncle Sam pointing at the viewer and saying, I want you, 
is a product of the First World War and in some ways one of the biggest icons of the war that we remember a century later. Creel is hugely successful. There are a lot of people who hate Creel and there will be people who protest against him and many First Amendment rights will be squashed. But the majority of Americans are influenced by his propaganda machine and get behind the war effort. You do have these pockets of people who are reluctant, who say, I don't believe in war. I don't think this war is just. I won't fight. You are likely to end up in prison for your ideas in these conditions. Not everybody believed what they were hearing. And in the years after the war, they were concerned that propaganda was a powerful and dangerous tool. The Committee on Public Information shuts down almost as soon as the war is over. But its messages um, were remembered a generation later. And in fact, when the Nazis were developing their propaganda machine and the road to World War II, they studied George Creel and tried to adapt some of that uh, to their political ends. I think World War I sets the stage for propaganda that we see today in one very important way. It was ubiquitous. It's everywhere. The difference is that in World War I, it was pretty clear where this information was coming from. And today, we might be getting messaging that we don't quite necessarily recognize as propaganda. We see that although propaganda is necessary in any modern war, you have to convey what you are fighting for. It's also dangerous, right? It can distort messages. It can get people to experience emotions like fear and hate. A century later, we still live with those powerful and dangerous legacies of what we created um, in World War I. You mean like what we're seeing today? Right. This whole censorship, this whole propaganda, this whole book burning, this whole, you know, the, the whole World War One with the I want you was to get you on board to follow the government. I'm the government. I'm here to help. Like, who believes that crap? And the fact that people, you know, uh, think that when stuff goes down, the government's just going to open up the golden gates and give you your iPhones and and your food. They're going to be like, hey, you've got rice, water, and you're good. Shut up. Shut up. Medicine, whatever. Cages, yeah, we make them mobile homes with with bars, so they're better. You know, th th this is this is ridiculous. And what it was, it, it was how they pushed it. Back then, you knew that it was coming from the government to gear you up, to get you pumped, because they know that patriotism is in, in ingrained in our cultural DNA. Right? We've been programmed to love our country. Because, I said this before, the United States of America doesn't have anything to stand on, like what, eons of history, you know, myth myths, uh, folklore. No, we don't. We have one damn flag and one damn vision. And if that vision and that flag mean nothing, then there is no unity, no pride, and no patriotism, period. That flag stands for everything that we represent. <laughs> so... And this is all now done with AI. My New Year show where I told you China and AI are going to be the biggest threats going forward, it was important. Because I don't think you, a lot of people understand just how much information of theirs is out there. Not what you post, 
anything you Google, I'm telling you in 2003, if we wanted to know if anyone knew what's up in regards to wars, we would ask Google who's what areas are searches coming from about India. Or when we invaded Afghanistan in 2001, we were getting reports that people in Idaho for some reason knew. Therefore, it was assumed that someone from the National Guard in Idaho was talking smack and opening their mouth and not keeping quiet. So therefore, someone was disciplined. You see how that goes? They they know everything. And this is, I'm talking about 2001, okay? When it wasn't Google, it was Netscape. And, and yeah, they, they were using uh, Yahoo and Lycos platforms. So we were getting reports on that. I'm just saying, your profile, every time you search something, like something, says everything there is to know about you. And nothing is secure. Nothing. So when people say, well, I got a VPN, no one cares. <laughs> that just allows them to see your computer's, you know, ID. The VPN doesn't really hide you. It doesn't. Like, you know, all my haters, right? The ones that jumped on the wagon and started talking shit because Ali made it so, right? <laughs> the ones that are pushing fake stories about Nasara and stuff. Yeah, those people. Right. Um, I see their IPs. They're using VPNs and they're selling VPNs, too. But it's like <laughs> I see you. Your VPN only masks your uh, computer ID. That's it. I'm just saying that's all it does. It doesn't hide you. I can find you and I can find your machine. You know, when things were coming out about the hack on the election machines, I, I was privy to that information. And, you know, obviously, I, I never confirm or deny what I what I can do. But just looking at it, I was like, this is BS. Yeah, those IDs may have checked out, but I can pull that up from my computer on the front end. I don't even have to go on the back end. It's all BS. There is no China Unicom. It doesn't exist anymore. It's called Akamai. This is all bullshit. So, you know, people, a lot of people don't seem to understand what the war here is. And it's disinformation is to get you confused. And those people that may unwillingly and unknowingly, you know, because they're profiteers, right, um, are pushing this rather than think of, you know, the people that are listening to them, that they're feeding them misinformation rather than say, you know, this is my opinion. I'm not an insider because let me tell you. Oh my God. It's like, I, I, um, I watch everything. Okay. I have like a bunch of tabs and squares. I watch everything, everything, everything and everyone you can imagine. I watch. And so many times, like, uh, yeah, yesterday in between calls, I had like 30 minutes and I was like, oh, I'm going to organize my closet for sure this time because it's like so disorganized. And I'm like, I, I got this, uh, this, um, these shoe um, things, they're like plastic little boxes from, I can't even put that shit together. And it's like, I feel so dumb that I have to watch a YouTube video to do it. But anyway, so I was trying to put it together. Obviously haven't done it yet. This is day three now. I'm going to try it again. And um, <laughs> I, was, I was trying to put it together and I was listening to all these people simultaneously. Um, you know, in the background. And they were like, well, I have an insider. And, and I was like, oh my gosh, I about died right there. I was like, come on, you don't have any insider. You have no insight. There, there is no insight. The only insider is the president and he's not talking to anybody. All right. So it's like, why are you? Oh, I talked to stop, stop. 
Everything you hear is opinions. Even what I'm telling you, well, most of it is opinions. I'm telling you that I already know the future. So I already know how it works out. I already know the fixed points of time. I've said it. So, I, you know, it's not fair that I sit there and say, well, I'm ahead of the curve. Duh, because I already know the outcome. But, you know, <laughs> the only person that can tell you anything is the president. This circles back. Let's circle, circle, circle. Um, which by the way, speaking of circle, okay. I don't know how many of you are on Gab, but on Gab, I follow iPod, uh, 1776. Oh my gosh. Like the memes that he was <laughs> putting out yesterday. I was just constantly refreshing just to see the memes. Um, so anyway, going back to it, the propaganda is willing, unwilling, knowing, unknowing. It's just a constant flow of propaganda constant flow of propaganda. You know, these accounts that are telling you all these crazy things and you're just like, yeah, because you want hope. And it's like, stop. You don't need anyone to give you hope. All you need is to pray, look inside yourself and what resonates. And that's what's up. I'm only here to give, you know, kind of instruction, I guess. I mean, you have to think. We have, uh, you know, a whole hot mess going on. We had the Mueller investigation that was so weird. <laughs> so weird. It was so bizarre. It just pulled out people from the Lincoln Project and Project and Lincoln Group. Sorry, Lincoln Project and Lincoln Group. Hence why Manafort was brought in, why Roger Stone was brought in. You don't know that stuff. Well, we did tell you that in Shadowgate 1. This is why they had them in there right? This is why they were being questioned, not because they work with President Trump. There's tons of people that work with President Trump. Tons of them that weren't rolled up in there. This goes back from way back, right? Who's the plan? Who started the plan? Who's on this choo-choo? Because it started a while ago. So there are so many things that have been going on, right? So many things special counsel that they did, came out with nothing, came out with, actually, yeah, actually, <laughs> came out with, damn, you guys are all losers and pushed the hoax all this time. And you have to question yourself why the Democrats were constantly saying, oh, well, you know, uh, once we take control of, you know, the legislature, everything's going to be fine. Right? Didn't they? Ha <laughs> ha. Freaking Mickey Mouses, all of them. Didn't they? They wanted to take the house. That way they have leverage. And they took it. Well, the Republicans gave it to them. Because they all knew that every single election in 2017, 18, 19, and 20 was rigged with really messed up machines that will give you the outcome that you wish. But truth sits on only one side. And that is one of the biggest advantages, no matter what happens. No matter what happens, we have to remember that in the end, it doesn't matter what they push. <laughs> Don't let anyone tell you you're the underdog. You're the majority. You are the majority, not them. You're the majority. That's how it pans out. So now Amazon is not burning books, but it's quietly deleting books. <laughs> that it doesn't want you to have access to. And that reminded me of uh, Nazi book burning. Um, only thing is, it's not put it, uh, they don't put them over a roasted fire. Instead, they just delete them.
You just can't see them. And this is from the Holocaust Museum. Where books are burned in the end, people will be burned. No, duh. Silent grain. Books represent humanity as it, at its best and its worst. To burn books is simply a fundamental repression of ideas. I mean, what can a book do? And why is it so dangerous that, that it needs to be physically annihilated. In 1933, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, called the Nazis for short, came to power in Germany and established a dictatorship under the leadership of Adolf Hitler. The Nazis intended to rearm Germany and to reorganize the German state on the principle that the German ethnic group or race was superior to all others in Europe. They suppressed all dissent within Germany, making it a crime to criticize the regime. Okay, so what regime are the books that are being banned, right, or deleted, or you're not allowed to buy this, or we're not selling it to you, so you can't have it, and we're not publishing it, we're not printing it. What books are those? Oh, the ones that are questioning the regime. What's the regime? <laughs> well, we all know the answer of that. It's the new Nazi party. The newly established Ministry of Propaganda and Enlightenment set up various chambers to control specific aspects of German culture, such as art, literature, theater, film, music, virtually all forms of entertainment and all forms of dissemination of news. In 1933, in April, Nazi German students decided to organize a nationwide book burning program to eliminate foreign influence, to purify German culture as they saw it. So you have committees of students meeting with professors together, deciding what categories of books in these university libraries would count as un-German. They didn't see themselves as suppressing culture, they saw themselves as advancing Aryan-German culture. I remember very distinctly a conversation between my parents and some friends who were all shocked that a nation like the Germans an educated, highly intelligent nation would burn books. Books never hurt anybody. The event that the students planned occurred on May 10th, 1933. In each German university city, 34 of them in all, thousands of people gathered together at a public place in which books that had been confiscated either by the students themselves or by Nazi party officials, often with the help of police, were brought and dumped in a pile. Student leaders exhorted their followers and the uh, listening crowds to swear an oath by the fire to destroy and combat subversive and un-German literature. For the national treason against our soldiers in World War I, we're burning uh, Hemingway's uh, books. Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister himself, spoke at the book burning in Berlin.
it is amazing to me the variety of books that that was burnt uh, on that night and, and, and thereafter. Among the authors whose books were burned were Ernest Hemingway, both Mann brothers, Thomas and Heinrich. There's the German writer, um, Erich Maria Remarque, who wrote the famous book, All Quiet on the Western Front. Helen Keller. Jack London, the American nature writer. There's very little that unites all of these books, really, except that they were all considered dangerous by the Nazis. So books are banned now, okay? Uh, books are removed uh, from being uh, purchased and replaced with um, certain books. I saw a comment on uh, the, the main feed, so I see all of the channels on it, where they're like, well, you know, I pay attention to what my kids are told to read in school. And I think I mentioned that my daughter had a book uh, that I was completely against. Um, so because she has no school today, I asked her to come into my little makeshift studio here. And so, Phoebe, do you remember what the book was called that you needed to write a report on? Um, it was about Stamped. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was about Stamped and the beginning of it. It's like there's no main character. It's really just saying facts, quotations. Um, and it's really just like talking about how privileged I am to be white and pretty much like how I should be pretty apologetic if I complain, is what I was getting from the book. But like I said, I refused to read it. So it okay. was stamped. And stamped is the, the name of the book? Yeah. I told my teacher that I didn't want to read it because I felt uncomfortable about what it was teaching. And she told me that the book was correct and that I should not feel bad to read it. And I, and I said, uh, what happened to like teaching how to read and learn adjectives and all that other stuff and read books that will improve your mental state because the school's all about mental state and here it is degrading white people in the book. So I told her and she didn't like that and she wanted to fail me because of it. Okay, thanks for stopping by, Phoebe. So that comes straight from um, my child, where, you know, she was told to read a book uh, to make her feel bad for being white-skinned. Actually, she's olive, not white. Um, <laughs> so I guess any hue, uh, she's privileged, supposedly. And the teacher uh, wanted her to read about it and feel bad that uh, for the color of her skin and how she must be uh, guilty for it. So the book was called Stamp. So they were removing other books that are controversial to them uh, because, uh, you know, they don't they don't um, they don't want people to. Um, to deal with it. And, uh, you know, well, many people will say, how did I handle it? Right? Well, my daughter now is 15. And from a young age, I've been telling my children that with your teachers, you should always have dialogue. Uh, you should always uh, stand up for what you want. And if you feel uncomfortable or you disagree, you make that clear. Uh, because the one thing that um, schools these days, uh, elementary, middle school, and they were like that during my time in high school, were that children were not allowed to ask questions. Uh, they weren't allowed to uh, probe or question the authority. Um, and this is uh, being reinforced today. Even though they encourage dialogue, it must be dialogue that aligns with their ideas. And I've told my children, when you get to college, it's completely different. In college, you're supposed to be having a debate 
You're supposed to be probing uh, deep questions to be able to understand and master the topics that you are learning because those are the skills you're going to take with you when you get into the workforce. So my children have always, always made it clear. I remember when my daughter was um, in school, they gave her a map and, um, you know, they were showing on the map a a big chunk of just um, Palestine in one grade. And this was, I think it was um, when my eldest was in, um, um, I think she was in middle school, seventh grade. And she was, uh, she, she was always a great student. And she was like, mom, you know, in history class, teacher gave me an F. And I was like, why? Because I told her that there's Palestine and Israel and she didn't like it. And she told me that I was wrong and that the map said so. And that's it. And then another time, you know, when she was in geography class, I think it was little Phoebe. She said it only showed Israel and it didn't show Palestine. And so, you know, she corrected the teacher (laughs) and said, no, it's like this. And the teacher also docked her for pointing out, you know, not being fair. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite interesting how the schools are choosing the books that your children are allowed to have access to and uh, what they are able to say, think, and do. I thought since we're discussing books and access to information, it's important we revisit why all these random books uh, were uh, being burned and why you're not allowed to access information. The censorship isn't about me talking because I told you guys on my flight back from, uh, the last time I was, um, well, no, last time I was publicly (laughs) public last time I was in DC, I was on my flight next to me, uh, was a guy when I saw that I was, uh, you know, banned from Twitter and I was like, damn, you know, uh, They're just silencing everyone. He goes, it doesn't matter. Maybe they should just do groups and, you know, whatever, you know, if they can't follow the rules. And I just looked at him and I was like, so they should all go underground because ideas are dangerous, right? And the libtard sitting next to me just looked at me. That's exactly it. They're like, we're not silencing you. You could just have your own little groups, go underground, stay off the mainstream, okay? Because you don't agree with us. I mean, that's what Hitler did, right? If you wanted the book, you can hide it. If you wanted this, you can, you know, put it to the side. Um, <laughs> that's basically it. L- look how interesting this gets. Not only were the books not associated with, you know, saying the Aryan race isn't it, it was the ideas behind the books that were dangerous. A grand total of the number of volumes, perhaps best estimates, would be between 80 or 90,000 volumes. For weeks afterwards, books were confiscated from libraries, from bookshops, and from private collections. In 1939, the Nazi regime initiated what became the Second World War. During the course of this war, the Nazis began to implement their population policy, a priority element of which was the annihilation of six million Jews on the European continent in a mass murder, a genocide that we now call the Holocaust. I was about 11 when I read the diary of Anne Frank and uh, it was translated into Persian. 
reading about Anne Frank and millions of other Iranians reading Anne Frank, they discover that they are that little girl and that what happened to that little girl was a supreme act of injustice. And so they connect to her uh, in a way that no political sermon or propaganda could effect. The first thing every totalitarian regime does, along with confiscation and mutilation of reality, is confiscation of history and confiscation of culture. I think they all happen almost simultaneously. Um, they surely happened in my experience. Uh, when I like to know where the Holocaust Museum is now that we're reliving history. Like, where are all the Jews that have gone through this? We have funded the crap out of these museums and all these scholars and all these papers written on this, on the Holocaust. We are seeing it happen and unfold right now in front of our eyes. We, you know, we're just not on boats and trains and walking in lines to camps yet. Do we have to kill people before someone stops this? We're already there. Where are they? So to all my Jewish counterparts that are listening, where are they? Where is the Holocaust Museum to say, yo, you know, everything you guys are doing, you know, you just need to add it into technology. What Twitter's doing, what YouTube's doing, what Facebook is doing, what the media is doing. Uh, this is what Hitler did. Where are you guys? The book burning. Amazon is removing books. Barnes and Nobles is removing books. They're all removing books. Where are they? Where are they? Where are they to say we've seen this movie before and our people were burned alive? Where are they? Where are they? That is a question all of you should ask. Where are they? As you can see, everything they're saying is happening right now. Where are they? It leads. You burn a book, it leads to burning humans. You get it? So where is it? Where, where, where is it? That's the question you should ask yourself. Where are they? They're telling you all these things. They're telling you how horrible it is. They're telling you how history is repeat, how history was so horrible and tragic because they were burning ideas. Well, it's happening now. Where are they? When I was living in Iran. For me, it's both um, heartbreaking and quote unquote, a sort of badge of honor uh, that my book is not allowed to be published in Iran. It has been translated into 35 languages and um, not in Persian. Really, all literature is dangerous to a regime that fears the free flow of ideas because the literature in its most fundamental way is meant to forge connections among human beings. Because you don't know where it takes you. Uh, knowledge is always unpredictable. There is always a risk. It is like Alice jumping down that hole, running after that white rabbit, not knowing where she goes. And for tyrants, control is the main thing. They don't like this unpredictability. They don't want the citizens um, to connect to the unknown parts of themselves, of their past, and to connect to the world. So for a totalitarian regime, this is perhaps the most dangerous thing because these regimes are predicated on the idea that the people within them will resign themselves to thinking that this is all there is and that there aren't any other options. I think the shame is ours is everyone's. We, we, we all have to think that as human, we share the best and the worst. 
and that as human beings, what happened then can happen again. How serious those warning signs were taken is exemplified by my mother, who, when I asked her if we had to worry about a guy like Hitler, she said, no, we are living in a democracy. We have the uh, protection of the police. Nobody is going to hurt us. So talk about warning signs. There were plenty of them. There were plenty of warning signs. Do you see the warning signs today? Do you see the warning signs today? Do you feel safe? You've been told about the warning signs. You've been told, and it has been happening over the past six years with brazen effect, and no one has stood up. So where are this? Where is the Holocaust Museum to say everything that we have been preaching about, the atrocities that have happened, are upon us again today? only in a more uh, advanced fashion because we bring technology into it. So many signs, so many signs, and no one is paying attention. Did we take them serious? My family didn't. Never believed that Germans would stoop so low that they would implement the threats which one fanatic uttered. And so our own life went from bad to worse and culminated in July of 1942 when we were arrested and sent to a concentration camp. To, to make this clear, it was a life without hope. The only thing that they cannot put in jail or um, prevent from physically leaving is your mind, is your imagination. That cannot be captured. But the idea of freedom should be kept alive, even if it's between two people or three people. Talk about it, think about it, live about it, and hope about it. Well, that's what we're doing. We're keeping the conversation alive, aren't we? But... But it is 2021, and we have the right to demand people and to remind them what is happening, to wake up. This is why I get angry. It's like, when are human beings ever going to learn? How many times do they have to go through this? Before the Jews, it was another. And before then, there was another and another and another and another. And it's like, <laughs> it just changes who the main player is. Oh, AOC is just crazy. You don't have to listen to her. Look at her now in Congress. AOC is nuts. She's on Biden's list. AOC is that Biden's never. He can't tie his shoes. Look, look, look. This is all textbook. So then one's like, well, then we're we're screwed. No, we're not. Because <laughs> if the movie's played a few times, guess what? Um, you kind of create a playbook to the playbook. I'll see you guys in a bit. Let's get that coffee going. Set the world on fire I just want to start A flame in your heart In my heart I have but one desire and that 
harness you No other will do I've lost all ambition For worldly acclaim I just want to be the one you love Yep. Did I get that fire going? Because you really do need fire. I am, you know, I I am almost at the point where I don't even want to look at the main chat room anymore. Uh, not because of the trolls. I enjoy those. Honestly, I do. But it does get me down when I see people because they listen to other people too. People that they think are telling them because they have, <laughs> they have insider knowledge. And it's like, all right, let's talk insider knowledge. How many people were talking about El Chapo last week? Zero, but I did. And what was in the news yesterday? El freaking Chapo. Uh, how many times have I said something and then it's in the news? Who is really the insider? Honestly, all they're doing is going back to my old shit and repurposing it to say, oh, maybe it's translated like this. Stop. The president tells you everything you need to know right now. That's all you need to know. What the president is telling you is all you need to know. Now, yesterday, uh, another thing, you know, Jesse Smollett, right? His Aunt Kamala, right? His Aunt Kamala and Cory Booker scheduled this whole, you know, lynching thing, right? They, they all colluded. We have their text messages, everything. What's going on with that? Not, no, not one reporter has said, yo, what's going on? Right? Not one. Not one. Not one. Not one. Not one, but I'm just bringing up Jesse. It's his anniversary <laughs> of being busted, right? Of being busted. Kamala tweeted out how incredible it is, but Don Lamont was the one that was like, I called him when he was in the hospital. And yeah, <laughs> your little buddy, right? Remember the two lawyers that were handing out mulattoes and set a police car on fire? Well, they pled yesterday. Uh, they're they're looking at a plea deal. You know, these great Princeton graduates and big high law firm uh, personas that were setting police cars on fire. I dare you to throw a mulattoes in a police car and get a plea deal and have Kamala Harris bail you out. Mm-hmm. That's what's up. So it's so brazen that it makes you sick. Well, and you know what's even more horrible is that people drop into our little chats or whatever. Well, what happened? Nothing happened. Yes, it did. We got a huge win that no one realized yesterday. And what's awesome is uh, the president actually put out a statement after, uh, you know, the whole announcement of what is going, right? And um, uh, about what happened at SCOTUS. Everyone's just like, oh, everyone's just so corrupt, you know? <laughs> really? That's what you see? That's, if, if that's what you see, then you have no business seeking the news. Because you've already made up your mind. Your life is over. There's nothing to do. You should just join the left. Honestly, you should just join the left. Because that's basically what you're speaking like. The lefties. You're not speaking like a free person that understands just how much power they have. And how important they are. And how they dictate everything. Well, yesterday... Uh, the president said, statement on continuing political prosecution of the president, Donald J. Trump, of president, Donald J. Trump. I repeat, of president, Donald J. Trump. You know, I should share that screen with you, actually, so you can see it while I read it. Um, 
it was so incredible to watch people talk smack on it too. He says, um, let's see, can I um, zoom in on this a little bit so people can see it? Nope. It only zoomed the page. So it says, this investigation is a continuation of the greatest political witch hunt in the history of our country. Whether it was the never-ending 32 million Mueller hoax, which already investigated everything that it could possibly that could possibly be investigated, Russia, 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 where there was finding of no collusion or too ridiculous, crazy Nancy inspired impeachment attempts, where I was found not guilty, it just never ends. So now, for more than two years, New York City has been looking uh, at almost every transaction I've ever done, including seeking tax returns, which were done by among the biggest and most prestigious law and accounting firms in the U.S. The Tea Party was treated far better uh, by the IRS than Donald Trump. The Supreme Court never should have let this fishing expedition happen, but they did. This is something which has never happened to a president before. President. President, precedent. It is all Democrat-inspired in a total Democrat location, New York City and state, completely controlled and dominated by heavily reported enemy of mine, Governor Andrew Cuomo. These are tactics by Democrats. Th these attacks by Democrats will do willing to do anything to stop almost 75 million people. The most votes by far ever gotten by any sitting president just who voted for me in the election, an election with many people and experts feel that I won. I agree. The new phenomenon of headhunting prosecutors and AGs who try to take down their political opponents using the law as a weapon is a threat to the very foundation of our liberty. <laughs> I know, I've had an AG come after me with the law <laughs> just because I was a threat to him. That's what is done in third world countries. Well, at least there they throw chairs and shoes, right guys? Even worse are those who run for prosecutorial or attorney general offices in far left states and jurisdictions pledging to take out a political opponent. Oh, wait. What was that? Oh, Letitia. Didn't I mention Letitia? Funny that the president should mention her. But, you know, everybody else is an insider. Uh, let's go. Uh, so I'm just saying, that's fascism, not justice. And that is exactly what they are trying to do with respect to me. Except that the people of our country won't stand for it. In the meantime, murders and violent crime are up in New York City by record numbers, and nothing is done about it. Our elected officials don't care. All they focus on is the persecution of President Donald J. Trump. I will fight on, just as I have, for the last five years, even before I was successfully elected. Despite all of the election crimes that were committed against me, we will win. That's what's up. So he talks about Letitia because I told you how important that is. He talks about all this and he's confident. And I'll tell you why he's confident. Because so many people don't get what happened. And it's like, well, they're sitting there, pessimists, pessimists, pessimists. The emoluments cause was kicked out. Now, I found a great liberal video that trashes President Trump and talks about that for a second.
But it's important that you understand what that means. And then think about my show yesterday so that you can understand where I'm going with this. So take a listen to this young liberal woman who's trying to explain why you should care about the emoluments clause that was, by the way, thrown out by the Supreme Court yesterday, too. You might have heard of something called the emoluments clause. You also might not have. That's because it's a rarely discussed part of the U.S. Constitution, seemingly an anachronism from a bygone age. So why are we talking about it now? What is the emoluments clause and why should I care about it? The clause basically, it's basically saying that any official of the U.S. government cannot accept payments or gifts from foreign governments without Congress knowing, voting, and approving such exchanges. Stop. Let's just stop one second. Foreign payments, foreign gifts that Congress has to know about, vote about, and approve about. Can we talk about Beijing Biden for a second? Okay. Can we talk about some other people too? Because we should. <laughs> but let's just focus on that first. I just, off the top of your head, you could probably count a few of those, right? I could too. Let's keep going. Let's back it up. What is an emolument? Under the most common definition, an emolument is just like salary. If you work for somebody and they pay you, that's emolument. When Benjamin Franklin who had been the United States ambassador to France, was leaving that position, and he received from King Louis XVI a snuff box, which may not sound like much, but the snuff box included 408 diamonds. And the concern was that U.S. officials might make favorable deals to a foreign government uh, with the hope of, again, getting a nice present, gift, or emolument. Okay. So no expensive diamond-encrusted snuff boxes from foreign governments. Got it. Well, then what about a president who owns, say, a string of real estate assets and a gold-plated tower with his name on it? Would that be violating the clause if foreign officials stay at his hotel? Trump would be violating the clause if he accepted a payment from a foreign government and performed services for that government. Uh, we don't have any facts suggesting as much, so I do not believe he is violating the clause. If um, a representative of a foreign government stays in a hotel owned by an American official, there is an economic benefit there that I would have no difficulty concluding is a forbidden emolument. That's a stretch. My business is a hotel, but I shouldn't then exclude people that may be working for other governments. Shut the fuck up. Please stop. So like first guy said, he has a hotel. It's not. But let's give an example of taking money. <laughs> taking money. from. Let's talk about what if like a country like Oman, right, gave a president like a house, like as a gift. Right. And tells him you don't have to pay taxes in my country because you're, you're Joe Biden. I don't you don't have to do that. Shock. It's all you. You take it, boo boo. That's your house. No taxes. I mean, OK, so it's not a business. Right. It's not a business. Um, and you're benefiting from a foreign government. Oh, wait, hold on. That that sounds like a problem here doesn't it? I'm not going to go too much into it because I got to file something first. But I'm just pointing out one of many such instances. 
So it's safe to say that opinions vary. While there is a healthy debate, a pretty large group of folks believe that Trump is violating the clause. In 2017, there were three lawsuits filed against him, causing quite a stir in the media. But while it is the first time the emoluments clause has been tested in court, many believe that the issue really should be settled by Congress and not by the courts. There are some issues that just don't lend themselves to judicial resolution. There are issues that ought to be dealt with by, by the political branches, Congress and the, and, and the executive, and this might be, might be one of those. The clause states that Congress can approve any emoluments given to Trump. 196 senators and members of Congress are suing him because he has denied them that right. But either way, for many people, it's about more than a few flashy nights at an expensive hotel. It's about where the hotels are built and what that means for our relationship to those places and leaders. Those members of Congress, their lawsuit includes other complaints. The Chinese government awarding trademarks to Trump businesses. The BBC, a news outlet funded by the British government, licensing Trump's television show, The Apprentice. Foreign governments renting space in Trump <laughs> buildings in New York. Such Even a if those issues won't be solved in court, mm -hmm. this question about foreign influence will stick around. Yeah, well, so what about Trump? I think obviously impeachment for this reason is not going to happen with Republican majorities in Congress. Beyond that, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Eric if it Jensen. sounds like we are in new territory, you're right. Can't think of any prior president who has had such an extensive network of businesses around the world. Whether That's or not right. there's a constitutional problem, there certainly is there certainly is an appearance problem. So there's never been a president that has had businesses around the world. Hold on. Joe Biden and his family have a lot of investment businesses, a lot of investment companies around the world. They just don't have hotels that you can physically see people go to. But remember, I have the Hunter Biden laptop. <laughs> so, uh, 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 oh, while people have been parsing through it, they don't know what to look for. They're just looking at what's there. What is there? But guess what? My myth calls, ooh, Kamala, ooh, Joe, ooh, his cabinet, ooh. We don't need Congress. We need the court. Because all I have to do is file and say this person is using their position as a cabinet member in the Biden-Harris administration to profit for their company, period. Done. Done. First impeachment coming along. You saw what happened with GameStop. That was just the beginning to show that his cabinet is profiting off of you and foreigners. One of many. I mean, we can talk, talk, talk all we want. We got to do action, 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 action. Now, so that's one thing. That was actually tossed out. Completely tossed out completely tossed out. Now let's see a very short, concise, um, educational video from the oversight committee, right? That was put up in 2018 when they were thinking about it, that explains what the emoluments clause is. I want you guys to listen to the air quote official 
President Trump's businesses violate the Constitution's anti-corruption provisions. And now we have seen both with the emoluments violations, violations of the anti-corruption provisions of the Constitution, where the president is treating the Oval Office as a profit-making enterprise. He cannot accept foreign government cash. Uh, the Constitution envisions that the House of Representatives would enforce the emoluments clause and other provisions of the Constitution. But the potential for corruption only grows with the increase of power. Accepting funds from foreign governments through his businesses without congressional consent. That is a violation of the emoluments clause. These papers are just some of the many documents that I've signed, turning over complete and total control to my sons. When reporters asked to examine the folders, transition staffers blocked them. From photos, the folders appeared to be brand new and completely unmarked. His team later told us they were visual aids. They said they were going to track the money and donate it back to the Treasury, who have not specifically identified themselves as being a representative of a foreign government so they're entity. They're putting the onus on the foreigners to identify themselves, not on themselves. Exactly. Tax well, obviously conflict of interest. And defend the Constitution of the United States. Ha! Yep, it is going to begin a very serious investigation. He turned over everything to his sons. But did Biden? <laughs> but did Biden? <laughs> See, they did this before they were going to go after him. Now, for all you smart people that, you know, try to um, disenfranchise uh you know, American citizens that are understanding what a big win it was yesterday. Let's revisit what these whole tax things are because his taxes being released um, are quite important. Um, and I want you guys to see Elizabeth Warren talk about it. You got to pay attention to what, uh, what they're saying because this is key. This is how you go down. I mean, they're so stupid. Be careful what you ask for, because this is what's up. And it's going to tie in A.G. Letitia, like I said. I mean, don't forget. Remember, we were talking about Eastern District of New York. Hey, Huber Jr.'s there. All the way down here. Durham Jr. $750. No missing zeros there, Elizabeth. $750. That bombshell headline late today, the New York Times obtaining information on President Trump's tax returns. While many of you were shelling out money to the IRS every April, the president was not. Totally fake news. When I was reading this story, this is kind of the soundtrack at my house. Ah! <laughs> and my kids were like, Mom, Mom, are you okay? I picked out the parts of the report that made my blood boil the most. And I want to be able to read it to you. And I want to get your reaction. All right. Donald J. Trump paid $750 in federal income taxes the year he won the presidency. You mean before he was president, he had a badass accountant because all of us wish we didn't have to pay diddly squat and <laughs> we want his accountant. Like, that's not a bad thing. He had paid no income taxes at all in 10 of the previous 15 years, largely because he reported losing much more money than he made. So what do you think, Katie? 
So I got off the whiteboard here to make a little graph. So say you were a nurse in this country, you're gonna pay right around $10,000 in taxes. If you are an elementary school teacher, right around $7,000 in, in taxes. Um, firefighter, 5K in taxes. Where's Donald Trump? Well, all the way down here at $750. No missing zeros there, Elizabeth. $750. But you know, here's what makes that so wrong. Donald Trump's businesses rely on roads and bridges that the rest of us paid for. They rely on workers the rest of us paid to educate. They rely on a world-class military the rest of us paid to keep us safe. Who does Donald Trump think is going to pay for these things? And Katie, now that we know how much he has contributed, or should I say how much he didn't contribute, what do you think about him bragging in the past that not so jealous makes him smart? Yes. He didn't pay any federal income tax. Yes. So that makes if me he's smart. Paid, it does not make him smart. Yes, it you know, does. I graded a lot of students in my day, and you have too. This failure to pay anything makes him unpatriotic. It's really, really simple. He's cheating all of us. Uh, well, let's see their tax returns. Let's see what they paid. Oh, guess what? Pelosi gave all that shit to her husband and her kid, both criminals, right? Maybe to her pedo brother too, right? Uh, you know what? I shouldn't say that because that she's not her brother, but she is a criminal anyway. But she gave it all to them. So they're the ones hiding all that. You know, they, they give it to other people or they create offshores or they hide assets overseas. So these clowns over here talking right now are quite jealous. That makes them freaking smart very smart. Now, let's go see um, how uh, the New York Times report on Trump's tax returns. This is from September. They wanted this stuff before the elections, but they couldn't get it. So now they're going to get it. <laughs> What's going to be their benefit? Are they going to try to come after our president? You think we're going to let you arrest him? Mm -hmm. You think we're going to let you try him? Mm -hmm. Right <laughs> now, President Trump's federal income taxes. The New York Times reports that the commander in chief paid almost no federal income taxes recently and that he may be under severe financial pressure in the next few years with hundreds of millions of dollars in loans reportedly set to come due. So we want to note that CBS News has not verified these findings. This is a New York Times report. Rebecca Walser is the is a tax attorney and president of Walser Wealth Management. She is in Tampa, Florida, and she's here to help us understand what this all means. Because the thing about it, Rebecca, is that, you know, there is a difference between what people might find a distasteful use of the tax system versus um, doing something illegal. And the president has sort of kind of bragged about his ability to work the tax system. In fact, he kind of used it as proof as to why he would be a better person to fix the tax system. So let's break down some of his things, and we'll start with the most recent years, right? Um, the, the New York Times claims that President Trump only paid $750 in federal income taxes in 2016 and 2017. So yesterday he denied the allegations, saying that he paid a lot. That's his quote. Um, so if he took the $400,000 White House salary for being the president and uh, broke ties with his businesses the day that he was sworn into office, which is what he said he was going to do, how would it be possible to pay such a small amount 
on the IRS. Could you still get away with just paying $750? Well, it depends on exactly how his salary is getting paid. We know that he said that he donates his salary to charity. So often, like mm -hmm. when we sell a stock, we can basically give the appreciated stock to the charity and not pay capital gains. So they get the full stock and we don't pay any tax. If his if his salary is actually being redirected to a charity, then he wouldn't be getting that salary at all. It wouldn't even be reflected on his income tax return. If that's how they worked it out. I don't know. Since we're not seeing the documents, it's very difficult to ascertain the validity and the actual numbers and to do assessments, as you understand, Amory. But basically, mm -hmm. um, if he is getting that salary, then under the current cohort, he's able to write off 60% of that, literally just as a charitable deduction if he's receiving it in his name and then writing it off. And then, of course, if he has other losses, which seems to be sort of what the New York Times is really honing in on, not, uh, I think their point, they're trying to maybe make it seem like he's maybe not an effective businessman, he keeps losing all this money. But uh, a lot of that, again, just like you said, we can't as assess how much is depreciation and amortization of, of actual things that he's doing with his real estate holdings. So it's really difficult to assess, is he really losing money or is a lot of this depreciation? And out of the entire article, there's only one paragraph that actually addresses how much is depreciation and amortization and gives us just one example, which I calculated myself, only shows really a loss of about $17 million a year for 500 entities in the period that they address the depreciation and amortization. So I don't think that it shows what they're trying to maybe hope it shows. But then again, I'm not a layperson. Mm. I can really digest these numbers. So mm -hmm. uh, you, you talk about depreciation. Um, over the years, the, uh, the president has touted the, uh, this strategy, depreciation. Uh, the New York Times goes into it in some detail, uh, essentially saying uh, depreciation is not a magic wand. Uh, the costs have to be actually spread out as expenses and deducted over the useful life of the asset. So, uh, and, and oftentimes the president stiffs some of his lenders or he removes himself from the boards of some of these entities that are losing money in an, in an attempt to use this strategy. Can you explain to our viewers how it's actually used and how the president may be using it? Yeah, well, that's exactly a really good point. So I think that's the biggest crutch of this entire article is really this $72.9 million refund that President Trump um, basically applied for and, and received. And so what we're specifically honing in on now is the fact that in 2009, under President Obama, as a re result of the Great Recession, in order to help businesses and to get the economy moving again, Obama increased the look-back provision. And I know this is so technical. I'm sorry. I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. It used to be that if you had a loss, you could only carry it back two years. So you could take a loss that was in the future and apply it to past two years of tax returns and get a refund. Well, under President Obama's Great Recession, sort of trying to help the economy, he expanded that to basically four and four, really five years, the fifth year being 50%. So President Trump paid a substantial amount of taxes in 2007 and 2005 and six. That's when he was getting a lot of apprentice uh, income. And so basically he paid over $70 million of taxes. So let me tell you what's up. So this is where it gets really good, all right? They got his tax returns now. So the grand jury is going to see that this man has been donating his salary. They're going to see his previous ones. They're going to see that everything was legal. They can't find anything illegal. Because uh, if they do find anything illegal, that means that his law firm, the best law firms and the best accounting firms in the world, totally messed up. So what they're looking for is to see, can we find anything that he took money from another nation? And... um. 
if I'm the president of the United States and the president of Uganda has a hotel chain that his kids now run and I go stay there, um, that doesn't mean that I'm bribing him. I'm staying at his fucking hotel room and I'm paying for it. That's not a bribe, okay? So it's like the most stupidest thing ever, but they're just itching to find something and that's what's awesome. Because the more people look and dig and dig and dig, the more they see there's actually nothing there. So then it boomerangs back. Now, before we move on to Rick Grinnell talking about this AG, this AG that will be the destruction of the U.S. if, if confirmed, which the Senate better not confirm because that's where we're going to be roaring real quick, real quick. I wanted to tell you something that you probably missed. You all know how I feel about A.G. Barr, right? This is some political tea, right? And I did mention Jesse Smollett, right? So I want you to know, in Illinois, there's this law firm um, that um, was appointed, well, to, they were appointed to probe Kim Fox's handling of the Jesse Smollett deal, okay? Law firms, um, Winston Strawn, right? And a guy named Webb. Webb and his law firm were actually put on uh, to investigate Kim Fox. Well, in December, before Barr left, okay, um, Barr actually had lunch at that law firm. And, uh, you know, someone got whiff of that and said, hey, um, why did this law firm that's investigating Kim Fox, the state's attorney that handled Justice Smollett, have a private lunch with you, Mr. Webb? Were you discussing, um, you know, what's going on? Remember, this lunch took place before Barr was even considering stepping down. Okay? Way before. So you have to ask yourself, why did he have a private lunch with Winston Strawn Law Firm before he decided to step down? And it's a very specific law firm that the judge, the Cook County judge, appointed that law firm to probe State Attorney Kim Fox. I just want you to sit on that for a couple days because that'll be kind of important later. 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 So now... Let's look at the lovely Rick Grinnell and what he had to say about Merrick Garland's statements. Merrick Garland, who was never confirmed of Supreme Court justice and kind of minced his words when talking, and how he said that if you set fire and destroy a courthouse, a federal building at night, it's not the same thing as doing it in the day. One's terrorist, the other one's exercise. <laughs> Shit, you not. Okay, take a listen to this. Hold on, let's go. A former ambassador to Germany, that is Rick Grinnell. Rick, always good to see you. Uh, thanks for coming on. I just want to remind you, I'm going to play this, and I'm going to get your uh, thoughts on it. This is what Attorney General nominee Merrick Garland had to say about the Durham investigation. Here's that. Do you believe the Durham investigation is a legitimate investigation? Um, Senator, I... I don't know anything really about the investigation. You've read the Horowitz report. Do you think somebody should look at what happened? 
Well, I do think somebody should look at what happened with respect to those FISAs, absolutely. And I believe the Inspector yeah. General and, has, and has done that. Chairman Graham clearly pressing him there. Um, is that appropriate for him to press him on that topic matter? And are you satisfied with the knowledge that Mr. Garland has on the subject matter? Your thoughts? Yes and no. <laughs> I am uh, very encouraged to see senators pushing on this issue because it's a very important issue. And no, I'm not satisfied with the answer. This is a very simple answer. If you're going to be the attorney general, uh, you need to just simply say the only way someone can be fired is for cause. We're not going to stop investigations. What are they afraid of? I mean, what, what happens if the investigation comes forward and it proves the Democrats' point, which it won't, but what happens if it did? Uh, this is a total opportunity for Merrick Garland to show that he is completely unbiased and he failed the test. Look, I think that going into this confirmation hearing, everybody thought Merrick Garland was, was a shoe-in. He had been voted multiple times um, by senators um, before for previous positions and considered for a Supreme Court position. Um, I think people were comfortable with him as a judge, but as an attorney general, this is a different job. And what he did was really raise a lot of questions that I think he, people were comfortable um, with him going to be as a judge general. He's gonna be more of a judge in that seat. And that's not what we need. We need somebody to run the Department of Justice. And so you have to take positions when you're running the Department of Justice. You can't just sit back and pretend like you're a judge. I think he's ill-fitted and some of his answers are showing this. And so we may have him in the wrong job and they, they should consider him for maybe something else. Mayor Garland also said that the Portland attacks, so many attacks, by the way, at the suburb, but the Portland one specifically on a federal courthouse building are not acts of domestic terror. Uh, one of the reasons given is because of the time of day, because they happened at night. Um, what are your thoughts on that and responding between the two, differentiating between what happened January 6th and really what happened all summer? Look, when you take his answers uh, on, this an on this answer about whether it's at night or during the day or, or the severity of it, and you look at all of his answers where he says, I don't know, I, I don't know anything about that. You see a man who is a judge and who's been trained as a judge to just sit in a chair and wait for evidence to be presented to him. And then he just give his opinion. Now, there's a lot of merit in that. And there are a whole bunch of positions where that is uh, a, a criteria or an asset. But this is not something that we need an attorney general. An attorney general needs to be a manager, needs to be somebody who has the wherewithal to run a department, to manage. And, and I, I think what we're seeing during this confirmation hearing is that he's the wrong man for the attorney general's job. And one of the questions posed about immigration was, is, is it illegal, uh, is it a crime to illegally cross our borders? He said he hasn't thought about this question. Is that appropriate? Is that a difficult question? If, if you do something illegal, isn't that a crime? This is a scary answer from him. Uh, of course it's a crime. And this just highlights once again that as a judge, he doesn't like to give opinions. And what he wants to be able to do is look at more facts. And so, again, that's totally appropriate in certain jobs but not for the attorney general job. He should have immediately just said, well, of course we have laws. And if you cross over and you uh, break the law, you don't wait in line. Again, we should always say, I as a conservative, 
Um, we absolutely are generous when it comes to immigration. This country gives a million people a year citizenship. We are the most generous country in the world when it comes to citizenship. We want more immigrants to legally come, but there's a line and you can't jump the line. And we are not going to be uh, positioned as people who hate immigration simply because we want a line. When I go to the grocery store, I wait in line. I don't jump up to the front just simply because I want to get out of there faster. I go to the line. When there's a line at the bathroom, I wait in line. These are just basic human principles. That doesn't mean I hate the bathroom or I hate the grocery store. It means that I wait in line and I'm respectful. And this is what I think conservatives have to do is we have to push back on this narrative that somehow breaking across the, the border and breaking the rules by calling that out is somehow anti-immigrant. That's ridiculous. I've cut lines at uh, theme parks before. I'm not going to lie, I, but uh, that's a <laughs> completely different subject. Look, before you go, uh, I've got to get your thoughts um, on this one. This shocking report out that former Secretary of State John Kerry and members of the Biden team secretly met with Iran, Iranian leaders at the end of Trump's term to reportedly undermine his policies. We, we know Kerry has been open about a meeting twice there with the foreign minister. Is this not a violation of the Logan Act? Why or why not? Yeah, I'm very troubled by this because there's a total double standard when it comes to uh, enforcement of this in Washington. I, I think we've got to look at the details because if, the, if these meetings were happening and he was undermining U.S. policy by offering a different uh, alternative, a different set of carrots, if you will, uh, we, we really need to um, get to the bottom of this. And I think that U.S. senators, the Department of Justice, the White House and the State Department, all of them should look at the details and we should not look the other way just simply because John Kerry is a Democrat and the Democrats are in power. Still awaiting an answer from the State Department on that. Rick Grinnell, it's always great to see you, sir. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks. How much do we love him? I mean, when I met him, I met him with his family. Um, he's an amazing person and completely straightforward. Um, so there's two Durham's, <laughs> just saying. And things are happening the way they're supposed to be happening. Um, there was a hearing today, live Senate House hearing on the Capitol um, riots, as they say. So I just want to play a clip from Cruz when he spoke before we go. And then we're going to be rating on Twitch. <laughs> Remember, Wednesdays, we've got DJ Steph, right? Okay, here we go. So those of you that aren't on Twitch, you need to get on. I am looking into finding on Trove because we can um, raid there too. So we can do raids on Trovo too. Uh, but I just haven't found any, you know, anything worth it yet. Here we go, guys. Absolutely, and that's reflected in the response posture for the Metropolitan Police Department. Uh, for the two prior uh, demonstrations that happened, uh, the MAGA 1 and 2 uh, marches, the Metropolitan Police Department, uh, we did not call up uh, officers from surrounding jurisdictions to be stationed physically within the footprint of the District of Columbia. We, we did not do that before. Uh, the mayor, in addition to uh, calling up those additional resources, again, called up the National Guard specifically uh, for the reasons that we outlined to them, uh, so to which would allow the Metropolitan Police Department to be a lot nimble in our response. That, in, in, a, in essence, 
enabled us to be, to be able to respond quickly to assist the Capitol Police officers. So those, response, those responses were different. Uh, we were disrupting uh, individuals or intercepting individuals who were armed uh, with firearms in our city in violation of the mayor's order, many of whom that were on, on, on uh, uh, federal, federal grounds. Uh, so the Metropolitan Police Department's uh, posture certainly was escalated beyond what we did the prior two marches. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, I appreciate your indulgence. I see I've gone over my time. I have a few extra questions that I'll submit. Thank you. Okay, very good. Thank you, Senator Sinema, and uh, thank you for your emphasis on the uh, FBI report and the issues that I everyone here seems to acknowledge with uh, getting uh, that. So yeah, Enrique that didn't go Tario at the right is place everyone and just putting send uh, isn't enough for a report like that. Okay, uh, next we have Senator Cruz, and then after that uh, will be um, Senator Ossoff. And if there's any other senators who wish to ask questions, who haven't asked questions, uh, you should tell us because those are the last two we have. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, and let me say to each of the witnesses here today, thank you for being here. Thank you for your testimony. And, and, and thank you also for your service. Uh, I want to thank each of you and, and also each of the heroic law enforcement officers who, who demonstrated extraordinary courage uh, in fighting to repel the terrorist attack that unfolded on the Capitol on January 6th. And, and we are grateful for the bravery and the courage in the, in the face of a, a truly horrific attack. In the aftermath of that attack, there is naturally a process uh, to assess what could have been done to better prevent that attack, to better secure the Capitol. And I think everyone recognizes that, that hindsight uh, is different from a decision made in the moment facing the threat immediately, but this, this hearing is nonetheless productive for analyzing the security decisions and law enforcement decisions that were made real time and for learning from them what can be done differently to ensure that, that an attack like that never again occurs. Chief Sund, I, I want to focus on with some detail your, your written testimony and just walk through what, what occurred uh, in the days preceding January 6th and then on January 6th. So in your written testimony, uh, you say, on Monday, January 4th, I approached the two sergeant-at-arms to request the assistance of the National Guard as you had no authority to do so. You go on to say, I first spoke with the House sergeant-at-arms to request the National Guard. Mr. Irving stated that he was concerned about the, quote, optics of having National Guard present and didn't feel the intelligence supported it. He referred me to the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms to get his thoughts on the request. I then spoke to Mr. Stenger and again requested the National Guard. Instead of approving the use of the National Guard, however, Mr. Stenger suggested I ask then how quickly we could get support if needed and to lean forward in case we had to request assistance on, on January 6th. Can, can you describe at, at, at a little more length those conversations with, with the two Sergeant-at-Arms on, on January 4th? Absolutely, sir. The uh, first um, conversation occurred Monday morning. Uh, I went over, I, I'd have to refer to my notes, but sometime maybe around 11 o'clock uh, in the morning, I saw met with Mr. Irving in his office. That's where I made the first request for the for the National Guard. Uh, he had indicated, I don't, I don't know if I really like the optics. You know, I don't think the intelligence really, really supports it. Uh, he had, like we had said, um, recommended I talk to the Senate Sergeant Arms. I went over and met with, uh, later on the day, uh, either I'm trying to recall if it was in person or over the phone, I'd have to go back to my, my, my recollect my timeline, uh, where I reached out to him 
uh, and they may have already talked because uh, he had referred me. He said, do you have, know somebody over at the D.C. National Guard? I said, yes, I do. I have a good friend over there, General William Walker. He said, can you give him a call and see if we need assistance, how quickly could we get assistance and what type of assistance could he give us? So that evening as I was driving home at about 635 at night, I went ahead and called uh, General Walker uh, and, and spoke to him and said, hey, General Walker, I don't have uh, authority to request National Guard, but I want to find out if we needed them on Wednesday, how quickly could you get them for us? And is there a way you can kind of, you know, be prepared just in case we put in the put in the request? At that point, he had advised me that he has 125 National Guardsmen who are supporting the COVID response in the District of Columbia. And if we needed a, a response, a quick response, he could, what he called, repurpose them and get them to the armory, at which point we could get somebody over to swear them in and try and get them to us as quick as possible. We ended our call. Uh, the next day, I met with uh, both uh, Miss, I met with Mr. Um, Stinger. He came over to the office for the 12 o'clock video call that I had hosted with the dozen of uh, the law enforcement officials from the National Capital Re for the from D.C. We spoke about it briefly there and uh, told him what William Walker had told me, as well as I'd passed on to Mr. Irving. I think later on that afternoon, they both seemed satisfied with that response. So, Mr. Irving and Mr. Stanger, Mr. Irving, as I understand it, you have some disagreement with the characterization uh, about the concern about the optics. So, so I would invite both Mr. Irving and Mr. Stanger to, to relay your best recollection of, of that conversation on January 4th. Senator, my best recollection of the conversation on January 4th was a phone call from Chief Sund indicating that he had received an offer for 125 unarmed guard that could be positioned around traffic perimeter checkpoints at the Capitol. My recollection again is as we followed up with Mr. Stanger, the three of us engaged in a conversation whereby we looked at the offer in light of the existing intelligence and the decision the collective decision amongst the three of us was that the intelligence did not warrant the national guard and my recollection that ended the discussion relative to the the, the offer and the only question on the table is any should we do pr perform any follow-up and mr stanger recommended that we ask that we that they be placed on standby and that was the end of the discussion so to, to the best of your recollection, did you make the comment about optics? And, and if so, what, what did you mean by that? I cannot re remember my exact verbiage. Had I used any language to the effect, I it was all in reference to whether the intelligence was matched to the security plan. Uh, and, and, and let me ask both Mr. Irving and Mr. Stanger, did, did you all have conversations with congressional leadership, either Democratic or Republican leadership, on this question of supplementing law enforcement presence, bringing in National Guard, uh, either on January 4th or real time in January 6th? On January 4th, <laughs> no, I had no follow-up conversations. And it, and it was not until the 6th that I alerted leadership that we might be making a request and that was the end of the discussion. Mr. Sanger? Uh, for myself, it was January 6th that uh, I mentioned it to uh, uh, Leader McConnell's staff. So there's been some disagreement about what time phone calls occurred. I know Senator Portman asked earlier, presumably everyone has phone records. I think it would be helpful if, if each of you could 
forward the relevant phone records to this committee. And, and Chief Sund, you also reference in your testimony that you sent an, an email to uh, congressional leadership. Uh, I have it. Uh, if you could forward that to the committee as well, I think that would be helpful. Thank you. <laughs> so thank you. Let me just uh, say something. I had sent them a bunch of stuff. They all had it. Did they take heed to it? No, because they wanted it to happen. And maybe some of them unknowingly did so. But consistency in all messages is key. <laughs> Remember for years what I've been saying about Mark Levin. Now everyone's starting to see it. And there's a lot of people that are like, who's going to... <sighs> Man, just saying. Like, seriously. You know, I'm really glad that Millie and Gavin got to put together a video of putting, you know, of everything we've been talking about for weeks now. They've gathered it and packaged it. She's so, she's so good. I mean, Gavin's really good at putting all that information and Millie delivering it, uh, you know, in ways that people can digest it. Um, it's it quite important, um, you know, that um, people work together. And uh, that that is something that all journalists should be doing. But, you know, they're too busy tweeting their oohs and ahs. And who's watching their tweets now? Nobody gives a shit about Gab, about um, Twitter anymore. It's all about Gab. Um, so tonight she's going to be premiering it on um, her channels. And then tomorrow we're going to go through it. But the thing is, most of you, when you watch it, you'll be like, wait a minute, I knew that. Wait a minute, I also knew that. Wait a minute, weren't we talking about this six months ago? Wait a minute, weren't we talking about this a year ago? Because everything that we've been putting together is there. But unfortunately, you know, people have to see it. We can't tell you. We have to show you. And telling you isn't going to, you know, stimulate because your ears aren't there to hear what is going on. I mean, it's, it's, people are just so lost. So sometimes, you know, I feel repetitive, but it's important for people to pay attention to the repetitiveness to understand what is the underlying message. Now, for those of you on Twitch, we're going to be rating soon, but um, let's uh, have a great evening. Have a wonderful day, and I will see you tomorrow, same time, same place. Or I might catch you on one of Millie's channels um, to see that amazing report she finally put together. Always gets the God job bless. Done. I love it up here. Tonight, Commander Whitson making history with her record for any American. By the time she lands in September, her tally will be 666 days. 666 days in space. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. could turn the page and time that I'd rearrange just a day or two close my close my close my eyes then I couldn't find a way so I settled for one day to believe in you Tell me, tell me, tell me lies Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies Tell me lies, tell me, tell me lies Oh no, no, you can't disguise You can't disguise Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies Though I'm not made 
making plans. I hope that you understand there's a reason why. Close your, close your, close your eyes. No more broken hearts.